Hey folks, sorry for the late episode this week, but I've got a couple of announcements before we get started. I'll be doing some comedy and a riffing show, riffing Night of the Living Dead at the Roxy Theater in Bremerton, Washington on Saturday, October 31st, Halloween night, with Owen Erdley and Stephen Dombrowski, two of my best friends in comedy. We can only fill the theater 25% capacity, but every ticket sold counts. So go to the Roxy Theater in Bremerton, Washington to figure out how to buy tickets. This week I've got Michael Garcia on. He's a show producer in Portland, Washington, in Portland, Oregon, and uh, he's one of my favorite people in the community. We get a little political about 10 minutes into this episode, and it's not my fault, but I'm not backing down from anything that I've said. I don't normally get political on this show, but just a heads up. Let's get started. I'm Sean O'Neill, and this is Try Hard, a love letter to failure. You fuck with self-help at all? Self-help and encouragement to those who need it. You sound great. I usually do. All right. And your mic does not? Uh, I sound okay. Just maybe I just speak a little further away. Yeah, that's better. Okay. Is it uh, so you don't think it's like an input issue? You were just eating the mic a little too much and clipping? Probably. I'm just used to having it like thumbs distance away. Same. I, that's why I over recorded at VHS Vengeance the last two times because I was doing my stand up, just put the mic on my chin mode. Oh, yeah. I had a real issue when I was doing. Uh, when I was doing stand-up of not eating the mic enough and and just people not hearing me. <laughs> yeah. What, I, I sound good now where I'm at in this distance. Yeah, you sound perfect. Okay. Yeah. We're recording this episode in Michael's backyard. Joining me right now is Michael Garcia. Oh, hey, Sean. Thanks uh, for inviting me to uh, join you in my backyard. Thank you for setting up your backyard and allowing me <laughs> to stumble through my equipment. Uh, uh, I mean, people do stumble in my yard often, so it's it's nice that uh, we actually get some verification of it. Well, thankfully, it's October, so I'm probably one of the sober people that'll be stumbling in your backyard. Uh, uh, you know, actually, uh, in the in this uh, COVID time, ain't nobody hanging in my backyard except for you, my friend. Well, I appreciate that very much. Michael's been being very safe and very careful. We're out in the open, like a good 10 feet away from each other and uh, recording outside. Yeah. Um, as long as we're talking about that, uh, I have been being careful. I've been staying down in my uh, basement for the last six months with almost no interaction with anybody other than virtually. So these opportunities are really exciting and fun and, 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 and uh, I don't know, freeing to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. Um but uh, I, I don't honestly, I'm just so excited to talk to someone in person that I don't even know what I want to say. I just want to put something out there, you know, just express myself in any manner. And uh, 
Uh, I'm happy to do so, but yeah, I'm just meandering now, so I'm hoping That's you com- can edit this shit down. Oh, don't worry. I, I have a lot of fun editing. Uh, but Michael, for those of you, for those of our listeners that don't know you, how would you describe yourself to the, uh, to the tryhards listening right now? You're a show producer in Portland. Yeah. Um, I would say that I am a, um, strange video archivist and a riffing show producer. Most specifically, Mm -hmm. I, uh, produce a couple of different, um, movie and, uh, media riffing shows uh vhs vengeance where we bring um several guests in and i have a couple co-hosts where we riff on bad classic vhs movies in a live context um for your audience who isn't familiar with riffing Mm -hmm. in a movie um setting it's a, a bit different than the classic uh term for riffing which would be uh, improvisational interaction with the audience if you're a stand-up comedian or it would be like guitar fills if you're a musician mm-hmm. but when it comes to um, movie and uh, media riffing it's um, basically kind of counterpunch jokes based on whatever you happen to be watching you know that uh, the term was coined by Joel Robinson or <laughs> Joel Hodgson in character as Joel Robinson back on Mystery Science Theater in the 90s. and Which we all grew up with and absolutely love. Yeah, and it, and it just kind of uh, it, it started a whole cottage industry that now in this new era, um, there's a whole whole venue and, and uh, um, I don't know, it, it, it feels like it's a bit of a riffing revival over the last few years. Well, there's been plenty of bad movies, so we have, you know, plenty of fodder to go to go to go over. And yeah, and I think that actually has a lot to do with it. I, I think that the explosion of of love for bad movies that came about in the uh, late 2000s and er, and early uh, 2010s, um, just because people were able to start sharing their love of, of bad cheesy films online really um brought everybody's eyes back to that area you know we're, we're seeing uh, i think that Tom, tommy wiseau's the room had very much to do with the mystery science theater revival on uh, netflix for example oh yeah i haven't seen an audience like those that go to the room outside of rocky horror just people uh they come there and they've got their sometimes scripted responses and some people just have a lot of fun coming up with uh, responses on their own. Yeah. Now, I I mean, I brought that up because I think that's kind of like the preeminent bad movie that most people are familiar with. Um, But uh, when I go to that show specifically, I mean, I guess we're going to get right in, in, into some riffing details here. Are we talking Um, about the room right now? Yeah, The room. Uh, When you go to the live shows of that, it's not everything. It it very much does feel like Rocky horror for the most part, because there's these um, like set jokes, these set riffs Mm -hmm. that that are expected for the whole audience to participate in. Whereas a a true riffing show, it's a lot of it's going to be improvised. And if it's pre-written, it's going to be riffs that are written by the individual. And it's not something that's kind of like crowdsourced necessarily. So, you know, I have seen The Room live um, and, and it was enjoyable, but 
I actually tried to riff while I was there and was throwing out my own jokes. And, and although we got a couple of laughs in our immediate vicinity, it felt like you were just pushing against the waves. And uh, it, it, it's something that I think is more enjoyable in a passive way. But as someone who truly loves bad film and, and it, it embraces it, it felt kind of uh, like I, I felt stymied. Whereas um, I've seen some Neil Breen movies uh, live who I think for those who are lovers of bad film, he may ha have uh, transcended Tommy as the most embraced director. And those films, you, you go in and you've got a raucous audience. You've got you know 200 people losing their minds, but there's no pre-written uh, jokes. There's nothing that's um, expected from the audience other than laughing at uh, awkward pauses, poorly written dialogue, and what seems to be the backbone of most great bad films today, a narcissistic director who has absolutely zero self-awareness. <laughs> yeah, there's a try-hard in all of us just uh, wanting to get their, their message across. And if you don't get their message, then that's your problem, not mine. And in fact, if you don't get their message, they may make another movie about how you haven't gotten that message. And then they'll make another one and just keep trying to hammer the point. Yeah. Like, what was the name of that director who uh, that I, I don't think he's German, but he makes all of his movies. In... Yes. He challenges critics to boxing matches when they uh, when they give him terrible write ups. Yeah, and uh, you know the bummer for that too was he one he was a uh, amateur boxer in his youth, so he knows how to box. And as you can imagine, uh, when you're inviting movie critics, specifically movie critics from um, movie blogs, because that's what he did. <laughs> I watched the video of him boxing a movie critic who went by the name of Moriarty. I think his real name is Drew McWeeny, which would explain why you might go by a uh, uh, go under another name. Um, but he was on Ain't It Cool News at the time. He's gone on to work at Hitflix, I believe. And uh, I watched the video and this poor cat is like 260, 280 pounds, maybe just a heavy unhealthy guy who was told that this was going to be done all in fun and it was going to be part of a promo for a dvd and they would uh you know take it easy on him and uve came out and pretty much knocked him out just oh, beat the man. shit out of him, left him vomiting in the corner it, it was really really awful and so not only do i dislike that piece of shit for the terrible movies he makes because they're not fun bad movies they're just bad movies made with the intent of making tax credits in Germany, what, what you were kind of referring to earlier. Yeah, it's impossible to lose money on a bad movie in Germany. I still don't understand it. I've read articles that walked you through it, and it, it makes no sense. I, I think it, it basically the investors get to use tax credits to offset losses from other businesses, some, mm -hmm. something of that nature, very Trumpian kind of bullshit. And in fact, Uwe Boll seems very Trumpian as a director now that we're talking about it. Yeah, we're talking about narcissists. Yeah, indeed. And and as long as we're talking about narcissists, uh, I mean, for those who don't know what day we're recording, this is post-COVID uh, infection for our president. 
So I think we can all come together and wish um, that Uwe Boll also gets COVID. <laughs> if only, if only, just uh, stay safe. To stay safe, uh, protect your families, wear a mask, wear gloves if you need them, and uh, don't go outside and cough in the general direction of narcissistic directors. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I don't believe any of them think they're in any imminent danger because they couldn't be. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's where we are with uh, our president right now. So I, I, I feel like it's, it's a given that it's going to happen soon. Oh, uh, yeah. I, and I hate to be this cynical, but I'm halfway thinking that it's a staged bad faith thing where he's just like pretending to have COVID to get the sympathy and to back out of debates, just like he backed out of debates during the Republican primary. You know, I had forgotten about his, his uh, backing out of debates and threatening to back out in the Republican primary. I do. Th this is so devastating to his campaign that uh, in regards to how it's going to affect, I think, uh, independent um, voters, that I can't see it being an intentional move. However, I think that the recorded um, video that he released and the photos that he's released uh, are questionable. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the hard at work uh, images his daughter sent out, there's a zoom in of him scribbling his name in the middle of a giant empty white piece of paper. So he's not actually working on anything. He's posing for the photo. They've propped him up and that's, you know, imminently concerning in, in that regard. And, and uh, with the video, his labored breathing in between the sentences. I mean, I, I don't want to go conspiratorial when we're dealing with the campaign that has been so conspiratorial, mm -hmm. but these are just classic authoritarian moves. It just feels very North Korean that we just can't believe anything that's coming out. And he's primed us for that. And um, God, I, I don't know. I, I, I didn't expect us to really go down the political road here, but I don't. You know. led us there, friend. Yes, I know. <laughs> Um, I, I'd say it's my second can of, uh, of 24 ounce caffeinated drinks that led us there more than anything else. Yeah. But, um, I've never gone political on this show before and I recorded four episodes with Bram Kennedy. So that's, that's really something. And the only thing that makes me want to go more political as far as the show goes is that I don't trust it to be real. I half expect it to work out in his favor, like Reagan getting shot. Yeah, I mean, I think that is why he got so positive with like with his um, video. He he talks about how much he enjoys the support coming bipartisan. His first text ended with the word love, which has anyone ever seen him use the word love in any text or uh, or uh, tweet rather? It, Outside it's... of Ivanka, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Um so uh, I, I'm with you there. I, I think he's going to try to play it for sympathy, but I don't think that there's any place for that to come into play at this point. Uh, I, uh, I almost feel at this moment that he may just try to use it as a, a as a good, soft explainer why he loses the election. You know, right. if I hadn't, if I had been able to get out there for that last month, 
or, you know, if I hadn't been low energy, you know, he'll, he'll be able to use it to spin the bad landing. I'm, I'm hoping. Oh my God. And his, his rallies were super spreaders in themselves. A lot of people, this is, this pisses me off so much that people forgot about it so quickly. Herman Cain died after going to one of Trump's rallies. That's your friend. And yeah, he's well, dead. Some reports came out. God, we're, we're really digging in here. Some some reports <laughs> came out of uh, actual quotes from him yesterday. Mm -hmm. And he was questioning, er, er, well, rather Friday, he was questioning um, whether uh, he was going to go out like one of his uh, uh, dead realtor friends from New York. Are, are they going to take me out like Joe Conley or whatever the name was? Wow. Yeah. And and so if he really does feel fear, it may it may really just change the government's reaction to everything anyway. You know, it might open his eyes a little bit more and, and maybe, you know, I, I'm, I'm not expecting a big change in regards to what we see on the ground. But even if he changed his messaging a little, maybe a few thousand people won't die that would have that we're following his lead on masks. I hope so. I mean, the guy eats McDonald's three meals a day, so he already thought he was invincible. Well, you know why he eats McDonald's three times a day? Oh, tell me why. Because McDonald's uh, is so clean in the way that they cook their food in their restaurants. That was his argument, that they are... That they, uh, are, are dirty like regular restaurants that he can uh, feel comfortable and safe with everything being served to him that it's done in a clean kitchen and it comes and everything's you know, I, I guess compartmentalized in their little bags and and papers and it's uh i don't know like as a kid i did enjoy getting food at a cafeteria because i enjoyed the organization of the tray mm -hmm. um so uh, and, and as someone who worked nearly every fast food as a teen. Yeah. I can uh, concede that McDonald's was easily the cleanest. Well, that's good because I had friends that worked in uh, A&W and Kentucky Fried Chicken and uh, not to say anything negative about what is possibly the most powerful fast food chain or in the U.S., but it was absolutely disgusting. Like most of those videos of people taking baths in the, uh, in the, uh, dish uh dish sink were in kentucky fried chickens okay well so my one of my hometowns i have many of them because i've moved around so much we had a uh, kentucky fried chicken in north lake tahoe in the small town named uh, king's beach and uh being in northern california it, it had a huge meth problem as all of northern california has and one summer I believe it was something like 140 vehicles came into Kings Beach that were U.S. Marshals, ATF, uh, different drug organizations, and they did a huge meth crackdown in town. They arrested something like 40 locals, and they shut down the KFC because they were selling meth through the drive through Holy cow. The yeah. colonel does not approve of that spice. They, <laughs> well, the secret's out. And they <laughs> ended up having to tear the building down after several years. They, I guess uh, because uh, in California now, when you sell a house or property, you actually have to have a methamphetamine disclosure to have tests done to show that there hasn't been production of it in your property. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that there was uh, there was so many uh, positives there that they ended up just tearing it down versus trying to clean it out and, and start over. I think I remember something like that from Breaking Bad. Wow. Yeah, you know, I, I I was not a big Breaking Bad fan. Mm-hmm. Um, Why? I too watched, good? Well, um, too messy. I grew up in Northern California, and and it's just so gross that the t- the subject matter just kept me away. It was only after the series had uh, ended that I went back to watch it and just binged through in like a two week period because it, at that point it's legend was undeniable and I had to watch. Oh yes. And once I got in there, it, it wasn't so bothersome because nothing that in- occurs on that show is anywhere close to the realm of what real meth is like. Oh, it's disgusting. I mean, I grew up in Lewis County, Washington, which like a lot of rural areas has a, uh, homemade drug problem either it's opiates or it's methamphetamine and we had both speaking of which i just came back from lewis county and i had to shower before coming to your house just to wash the stink of it off of me oh no what what is the stink i i don't know there were just trump signs everywhere and i went to an autumn festival with my mom she my mom is a uh a uh, avid bead collector and jewelry maker so she goes everywhere where they'll be selling pieces that she can make jewelry and things out of we go to this outdoor pop-up market and there's not a mask in sight and i'm feeling really uncomfortable and i can't back out because my mom and i came in the same car and i can't lecture my own mother about uh how unsafe all of this is oh man I lectured my mom, uh, rest in peace. She passed away about six, seven years ago, mm-hmm. but I, I've, I've been lecturing my mom since the age of about six or seven. You know, I, uh, my own, uh, brothers, I'd be telling you, are not watching them well enough. And I, I would hover <laughs> over my younger brothers because, you know, she, she was having a good time. She was a Northern California hippie type and, and just really enjoyed life. And I have been high strung and worried since birth. <laughs> you know, I, I'm the, uh, I don't know, Tommy, on Rugrats. You're Chucky. I am Chucky. Oh, my God. I, I, at a certain point in my teens, it was getting kind of creepy that I would predict when my friends were going to go to jail. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I'm not going with you guys. I think you're getting arrested tonight. <laughs> and often I was right. <laughs> I mean, you weren't a squeaky clean kid, but... Uh... No, no, I, I was not. I was just, uh, I was a very analytical and um, prepared kid. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't get in trouble, though I caused plenty. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's let's get back to the task at hand, which is uh, you love terrible movies. And you you draw a line between terrible movies and movies that try too hard to be terrible. Uh, we've uh, had yeah. this discussion before. Yeah. Um, so a uh, little background on why I would love terrible movies. I'm an old dude. I uh, turned 49 a few weeks ago. So I come from an era of three channels coming through on television often. You know, in Northern California, we lived in the foothills. So, you know, there'd be a UHF channel or two that might come through where we could get some syndicated stuff. And then you had ABC, CBS, and, and, and NBC. And I mean, this is even a pre-Fox era for most, you know, a good chunk of my life. 
And um, as an indoor nerd who hates the outdoors, I would be at home watching whatever was available. So you learned skills that helped you get through bad movies and bad television because often that's all that was available. And you would have to make them more entertaining, whether that was riffing and making jokes as it played through or building your own narrative for the characters or even sometimes just answering them and having a conversation because you have no friends and your mom's sick of hearing you castigate her for how badly she raises your brothers. <laughs> so you're, you know, you, you, your TV is your companion. And that was kind of the basis for why I would riff bad movies. It, it, it was a way of turning something unentertaining into something entertaining. And I think that's the basis for more, most people. And that's where I think mystery science theater really came from when, when it came out, it was very exciting to me that, that there was other like-minded people, but I think that also created a market for bad films and people started to intentionally try to make films that, uh, tapped into that same place, but it's very forced. And I think that's where you get your Sharknados and films of that nature. And trying to be knowingly bad is such a fine line to ride that it very rarely can occur. And really, I think the best of bad movies, um, so, sorry to uh, just steamroll you. No, no, I'm completely interested. Um, I think the best of bad movies exist because the creators behind it have a passion to make it. And whether it's being badly made or not, their love is coming through that they this is something they've wanted to make and they're enjoying making. And and, you know, they might not see the misfires that that they are uh, shooting, but the the fact that there is a love for the product comes through and you kind of root for a good bad movie and, and there's a silliness to them and, and so often when someone tries to intentionally do that you it, the calculation takes away from from any passion or for from any real silliness it, it all feels like forced and, and almost cringe inducing. We had this same conversation about uh, Rocky Horror and Barbarella, where you 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 had were of the opinion that uh, it was trying too hard to be a bad movie and it just uh, misfired and was cringe inducing. Yeah, I'd say that on both of them. I, I think Rocky Horror uh, plays much better after the, the uh, live show had been created. I, I've tried to watch it just on its own. Oh, you got to go to it live. Yeah. Uh, if you want to enjoy it, you got to go with a bunch of freaks in the middle of the night. And Yeah, and, and even then, I am not the biggest Rocky fan. I, I, back in the 80s, which I think was kind of its heyday for live shows, every town had, had a live Rocky show, and I probably... Sure went to six or seven different versions. Uh, I, I would say the Birdcage Walk in Sacramento, or Citrus Heights, rather, best show I ever saw. The Berkeley one, which was the, the one they used at the intro to the 25th anniversary VHS tape, the worst one I saw, simply because the audience was tourists and not people who were seasoned with the show. Mm. Um, but without that, it, it's not a fun, bad movie, and, and it's a musical, and I'm not a fan of musicals, so ah, it kind okay. of poisons it a little for me. Um, and Barbarella, I have not been able to make it through to the end. 
but I'm just not a fan really of gaudy film. And a lot of it's being with the right audience. You know, mm -hmm. if I have the right friend who does love it and can riff it and it will get me in the mindset and I could roll through. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, I, I like to be of the mind that anything is riffable. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my co-hosts, a friend of yours as well, Avalon Leonetti, Mm -hmm. uh, we source a lot of VHS tapes for riffing purposes. Um, one for our show, uh, Forgotten Fantasies, uh, where we riff old videos and memories of our guests. Um, but also just for our own like fun. And we'll go to uh, Goodwills and try to find every black spine tape we can find, which is just recorded old VHS home tapes. And we've riffed people's birthday parties. We've riffed Christmases. <laughs> I mean, we're not putting that out on TV because that, or rather on, in any of our shows, because that feels like we're kind of, you know, uh, breaking into somebody's personal life a little too much. I don't want to put that on display. Sure. But for my own personal entertainment, sure, I will kick the shit out of your Christmas tree. <laughs> All right. Well, some of the most fun I've ever had a. Uh, I've ever had performing have been on your shows because uh, riffing is a lot of fun and you somehow find people with the most passion for this sort of thing. Uh, well, I, I do try. Yeah. You know, I, I like to think that I put together a good show and then surround myself with much funnier people. And in that case, that's why we've invited you back a few times. You are a fantastic riffer, and we have a, a small crowd of, of other riffers, uh, Nick Puente, Dave Lowry, uh, Carolyn Maine, Avalon, who I mentioned before, uh, James Wood out of Salem is a fantastic riffer. I mean, we'll, we'll bring in a lot of guests. Uh, Noriko Ott, for example, one of the oh, funniest yes. guys in Portland, maybe the funniest stand-up in Portland, in my opinion. Uh, we've, we've been lucky enough to uh, feature him four or five times. Um, it, and it, it is a really, really fun and exciting show. And um, the fact that we can bring the audience into it as well has been a lot of fun. We, we've had audience members up on stage a couple of times, and uh, the audience gets to participate in the riffing, throwing stuff out here and there a bit as well. And it's, it, I, I think it's the natural progression of where these riffing kind of shows can go, mm -hmm. is to try to bring in as many people as you can. Well, this show is about failure. So getting, getting back to... Uh something before you mentioned that you were a stand-up comic at one point and you don't do that anymore oh yeah i failed <laughs> um so uh yeah i did stand up for about two years though i don't know if i'd say i ever really broke out much more than being an open micer i got to be on a couple of uh showcases and i did some shows while uh, traveling around california but it, it was mostly with the intent of learning the process, just getting comfort on stage and just understanding another facet of these live shows. Um, one of our uh, riffing shows, we do VHS Vengeance, which I mentioned earlier, we play old VHS tapes. Um, because so many classic tapes have these uh, long, slow lulls, Long. Because so many of these shows have uh, these long kind of boring lulls within the tapes, we will fast forward through some of those portions. And, and when doing so, uh, we will often have a uh, local or traveling comic come on and do a quick fast forward stand up set. And for three or four minutes as we're fast forwarding through some boring shit on the film, the comic can get, 
can do a uh, set or whatever other thing they might want to do. And I felt like I just kind of needed to know more about what that was before I started doing shows that featured it. Okay, so you never wanted to be like a road comic or whatever. No, God, no. I mean, it, I, I admire those who have the constitution for that. But like when, when we do a riffing show or we do one of my comedy panel shows, I, it, it's like I'm part of a group and, and I'm interacting with, with those folks. And it kind of it, it inoculates you a little bit from the audience um where and from like the dangers of being on stage by yourself because you, you live or die by by your own delivery when you're doing stand-up mm -hmm. but when you're in a panel there's especially when you're in a panel with a group of comics like the ones we're able to bring on to our shows there's always someone who is just ready to jump in and and, and uh pick things up so if you falter or if you're quiet for a moment, someone else is 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 just waiting to jump in there and take over. And that way, it's a little bit like British uh, panel shows. Indeed, I mean, you you just have a group that's aching to get their moment to riff, and so you you kind of you 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 prime the room and you step back and you kind of let them take over. And so when I was doing stand-up, it was, I wanted to learn the process and I also wanted to kind of network a bit, get to know some people and get some understanding of how joke construction is, 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 is done and, and how audiences react to that and to maybe learn a little bit about that process. But the defeat I would feel after every bad set you know outweighed any glory or any excitement i got after a good response with an audience it, it is a painful and harrowing <laughs> way to to do comedy oh god have you ever uh, bombed so hard your body hurt the next day oh god i i have bombed so hard that my soul still hurts <laughs> I so uh, to, to, I'll just walk through it all. I started out uh, doing comedy in Reno, just doing podcasts, movie podcasts. I mean, everything kind of circles back to movies for me more than anything else. And then coming to Portland, you know, it was my intention to just continue that route till I saw what kind of live shows occurred here. And I realized that the podcast I've been developing could easily be translated into a live show as, as well as into a YouTube show, which is what the long-term plan had always been and what we're working on now. And before doing that, I felt I needed to brush up or not brush up, but learn a lot of skills. And I initially uh, started taking some uh, improv classes at the Brody Theater in Portland. Uh, rest in peace, Brody. Uh, I'd been here like 15, 20 years, I think just closed down last year, um, opening up to the amazing kickstand uh, comedy theater we have now. And uh, I did that for about six, seven months. And I remember one of my teachers at one point telling me, you know, if you <laughs> chastising me, really, because yeah. uh, one, he told me I need to get out of my house, you know, you, you know, you need to work on your space work and you need to uh, work on your yes anding and such, of course. 
Um, but that's not why I was really there in the first place. And uh, at one point he uh, told me, you know, if you want to be funny, maybe you should try stand up. It's like, you know, I hadn't really thought about going that route, uh, you know, before going into my sh shows, but you make a good point. And at the end of that class, I quit doing the uh, doing the improv classes and spent the next two years uh, trying stand up because uh, I, I think he saw what it was I was trying to learn and do. And I didn't take it that way at the time. I thought he was actually being really negative. But I think he he understood what I was trying to gain and trying to direct me into the right direction to kind of get those skills. Mm -hmm. And so that led me to the um, the the Portland op op open mic circuit, which is a at, at the time I was drinking. So it was brutal, both in regards to audience responses to my comedy and to uh, what I was doing to my liver. <laughs> Absolutely. It's. Uh... It's kind of expected that you buy a drink when you go in there because we're we're not getting paid and uh, the venue almost never cares about us. So the only way to keep the show going is to buy two dollar cans of beer at a time. Yeah, and I think um, yeah for your audience, if any of them aren't actual open micers, because I know so many of our podcast audiences really do exist based on the, the circles we run in. But um, yeah, the, these uh, open mics at different venues really do uh, survive by the participants of the open mics. You know, they're typically the audience itself. And so uh, it kind of comes on the comics to be supporting the shows they want to be on. Mm -hmm. I mean, financially, really. I mean, I can get behind that 100% because there have been uh, mics that I went to where I just wanted the time and I thought about buying a drink, but it was just sort of like, I don't want to be here any longer than I need to be. Yeah, I there, there were shows I'd go to because towards the end, I, I quit drinking two years ago. So the last six months or so of me doing the mics and, and shows, uh, I had quit drinking. And in fact, that's when I started being able to do some showcases. And I think my not drinking had a lot to do with that. I was able to really buckle down and focus. And my memory was a lot stronger on uh, set recall. Uh, I didn't riff as well, but I think that that's going to be different based on whoever's involved. But uh, when I got to that place, I would often show up and I would just buy a soda or buy a basket of fries and I wouldn't even drink it or eat them. I just wanted to, I was like, I was so happy that they were giving me stage time that I wanted to put some money into the venue for allowing us to have a show there. Mm -hmm. um, in a pre-COVID era, every neighborhood has a show in Portland. And in a post-COVID neighborhood, um, Jesus, I don't know if every neighborhood will even have a restaurant. Uh. Well, it'll definitely take some time to get back to the way it was before. Uh, yeah, are you doing any uh, online mics or online? I, uh, I tried doing Zoom mics for a little while, but uh, I just there was a disconnect, and I wasn't getting as much joy out of it, and I felt no pressure to write for them. Like I think of stand up like those arguments you get into where you uh, where you have a a point and then you lose it, and then you walk away, and the argument plays out several different 
better ways in your head where you where you ended up on top. That's how I write. I write in I write spitefully afterwards. And I didn't get that same energy from doing Zoom mics. So it's just, I didn't think of it as a waste of time. I thought of it as taking a spot away from somebody who was getting something more out of it. Gotcha. Yeah. So I've done a couple that were more storytelling like. I, I mean, my comedy was always very narrative. Uh, I didn't write a lot of one liners, it, it was basically just sourcing things out of my own personal experiences. And so there's been some storytelling ones that were actually kind of nice because it, it kind of gave me the space to, I, I don't know, live inside of my head a little more because I wasn't as worried so much about my movement on stage or how I was pre presenting my body, all of, all of which are things I think about when I'm on stage uh, in front of a live audience. Uh, especially in the modern era, now that I'm editing video of myself for our YouTube shows. And you, it's, you know, it's one thing to listen to audio of yourself and hate your own voice. But when you watch video of yourself and you hate your own face, it takes it to another <laughs> level of, of self-awareness. And it's like, I now watch which leg I put my weight on when I'm on stage because I didn't care for the way it looked when I was watching video of myself. And so getting onto the zooms, it took all of that pressure off, but the reactions are different. You know, there's a slight delay that, that comes from talking through online mics and, um, just the, 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 the visceral response, no matter how, anyone's laughing or not it, it, you just don't get the same uh, i think you don't get the same enjoyment out of doing it but you also i feel you don't get the understanding of how well your material works mm -hmm. and that's what you really do open mics for i mean you're doing it with other comics in front of other comics to get feedback to see how they respond because if you're making comics laugh there's a very good chance you're going to make um civilians laugh Yes. And uh, it's I, I feel on these Zoom mics, everyone is so intent on wanting to have a good experience that they're overly effusive in their response to whatever comedy you do. So you don't get a true barometer of how well your material worked. And it's kind of an over politeness because we can see your face, too. Yeah, you're right. You know, that didn't occur to me. Uh, typically, you're just seeing the lights and, and you're you're responding to the audience laughter and maybe a face or two in the front of the uh, crowd. But when you're doing a Zoom mic, you got uh, anywhere between eight and 15 faces just mixed in on your screen looking at you. And, uh, you know, I, I work a remote office job and so that's what my sales meetings are like every week and i just don't feel like you you get the honest response you need to be writing well i i, I mean it, it, it's good to keep those that muscle memory going but it just doesn't feel like you're getting the i don't feel like any at, at best i think people are treading water by doing this and yeah. no one's uh, uh, um, pushing forward. And, and that's not a um, criticism at all. I mean, that's just the existence we're all living with right now. I mean, sometimes it's better to do something rather than wallow doing nothing. 
Right. Uh, and uh, we, we're, I've been lucky enough um, that I've had the opportunity to record a couple of live shows in the Clinton Street Theater recently. Uh, they're doing some uh, benefits to try to raise money to keep them alive. So speaking of which, uh, anyone out in the audience, please go to the Clinton Street PDX website. Um, they are trying to stay alive and we need more independent theaters like those in town. I mean, we do have the Hollywood and movie madness. They seem to be doing all right, but Clinton's on the ropes. And that is the kind of, uh, we had mentioned Neil Breen earlier. That's where Breen plays. That's where the room plays as well as uh, cinema 21 and the longest running Rocky horror in the country. Yeah. And you know, all of that is really at risk right now. So go check out that website. And you may actually see a couple of our live VHS uh, Vengeance shows on the page. They've got dozens of different um, videos that have been uploaded by local comedians and filmmakers and musicians uh, in the hopes of helping uh, raise awareness and money. All right. I'm going to we're going to circle back to that at the end. But before we go, do you have a fun bombing story? I mean, we have plenty of that sucked, that hurts, but do you have a fun bombing story? I can go yeah, first if it makes you feel more comfortable. I've, I've actually, I, the last mic I did was the, the worst bomb I ever had, and it was subsequent to the best stand-up uh, mic I ever had in the same exact venue the week prior. So... Um, this was uh, probably about two years ago. Uh, I'm sure you remember Carter, who used to run the mic at the uh, Big Legrowski in downtown Portland. I remember Carter. And that was a mic I didn't do often. It was just in a location and time that didn't work for me. Um, I mostly did uh, very early evening mics and weekend mics because I had a day job and uh, again, I wasn't really grinding to to do uh, bigger shows, so I, I was doing a lot of small mics. But um, Legrowski was just one of those uh, mics in town that was a it, it's one everybody would do. You know, you, you'd show up. Everyone was outside having conversations is is a very social mic. And I'd always wanted to kind of get in there. And uh, I finally got around to going. Um, Avalon and I actually went and did a couple of sets. This was uh, when he was still doing stand-up as well. And he goes up and has a great set. And I wait like an hour to get my turn because Carter barely knew me. And uh, so often is the case with open mics is um, you sign up and they kind of, and no matter what order you sign up in, often people will skip ahead or get moved around based on the rhythm of the evening or on favoritism by the comics or whatever it might be. And I sat for a good hour after Avalon to go up and do my set. And it had been material I had been really working on for a number of months and felt really solid with. And it killed. It was a fantastic, fantastic set. I, I felt more confident than I had it probably at the end of any other set I had done. And as I was coming off uh, stage, Carter's like, hey, Garcia, that was a fantastic, on mic, that was a fantastic set. You know, uh, anytime you come out, just let me know and I'll get you right up. And I left glowing. I was almost mm -hmm. floating as I went out, you know, from this effusive praise. And uh, the next week, I was like, I'm definitely going back in because he's going to put me right up, you know? Yeah. And so I come out and uh, this was after some dumbass Trump move. 
And I'm feeling so confident instead of doing material I had been working on on a long time, I felt like I could rewrite something I had written a year before, turn it into a, a riff on Trump himself. And I didn't even have my notebook with me that had that material. I thought I could just pull it out of thin air. I was feeling that confident. Mm hmm. So, uh, indeed I, I, you know, I come in and I sign up and Carter's like, Hey man, I'll get you up in a few minutes. Don't worry about it. I was like, fuck yeah. And so I go to use the, uh, restroom and I'm in the bathroom and, uh, as I go to leave, it has one of those like, Oh boy, I don't remember the brand, but it's like an air blade or something like that, that you, after washing your hands, you put your, it, it, it's kind of like a leaf blower powered hand dryer. Yeah. And I, so I go to, uh, dry my hands after I open the bathroom door and the bathroom is about seven or eight feet away from the, uh, of the comedy stage. So. I open the bathroom door, realize I haven't washed my hands. I mean, this is pre-COVID, but it's still like, hey, that, you don't do that. So I reach in and wash my hands and go to blow dry them under the blade. Door still wide open. Sounds like there is a leaf blower blowing across the stage. <laughs> I step out. Carter steps up onto stage to thank the uh, comic before him and is like, uh, yeah, hey, I just want to remind all you assholes, uh, we can hear that uh, air blade. Anytime you use the bathroom, please keep the door shut. And everybody put your hands together for Michael Garcia. And I step out of the bathroom onto the stage. Uh <laughs> and I've got flop sweat as I step onto the stage because I realize he had just called me out. And the material that I was so confident I was going to recall escapes me immediately. And I have done such a poor job of planning. I have left my notebook, which has my current material on it, with the can of Diet Coke I had no intention of drinking over on a table far across the room. So I have no fallback and I can't re remember my material. I stumble through the one joke about uh, Trump that was going to set up all this material and I start stammering and I continue to stammer. And then I look over at Carter and he's just shaking his head no. And I just stop. And this girl says, oh my God. And the whole room hears it. And I continue to, and I start to stammer again. My face turns red and Carter just steps up on stage. Michael Garcia, everybody. <laughs> and I slink out. And I never do an open mic again. <laughs> that was the end. I uh, was, was, Chris Hodme was kind enough to have me on one of his uh, on one of his showcases a week or two later, and so I was able to scrape up a, a little bit of dignity being able to have a decent set there. But uh, I have never done an open mic since that time. It, it was so crushing and painful, and I can hear that that girl's voice in my head now she was I, I mean i remember what she looked like she was wearing a snow cap it was pulled down over her ears olive colored skin dark hair and just this look of pity that i will never forget oh my god i might have told listeners about something similar that happened to me one time where i get on stage this was years ago 
in a coffee shop full of young people before I came to the city. And it was a mixed open mic, so comedy never does well in a mixed open mic because they expect you to be either be a poet or or a musician. And if you come up without a guitar or a notebook and just tell your half-boiled opinions about politics. Well, you know, if you would just deliver the jokes in slam poetry cadence, it would have a great response. I probably would have, but, you know, I was naive and, and to be honest, uh, uh, probably too selfish in the way that I was presenting myself. But I go up and I tell political joke after political joke into what is... A very red room. I figured it wasn't going to be as red as it was, but it was all religious young people. So uh, it was a church-owned, not a church-owned, but very involved in the church-owned uh, coffee shop. And I tell AIDS joke after political joke. And at one point, I hear a girl in the back scream, What is wrong with you? <laughs> I get off stage and I go to talk to a friend and that same girl comes up to me and says, uh-uh, no, you got to go and pushes me out the front door. Wow. I mean, I remember being pissed, but I also think, yeah, she's got a point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to know your audience. I mean, you actually invited me to one of uh, the riffing shows you guys were doing up in Washington. You, you, you've been kind of yeah, up in Port Orchard at uh, what was the Dragonfly Rest in Peace. Yeah, um, you you were kind enough to invite me up to uh, some of the riffing shows you do up in Washington, and uh, we did a 420 show where we were riffing um, uh, 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 Reefer Madness. Yeah, and I think I had two uh, just easy Trump riffs that came up in the show, and the first one landed with such a thud that I decided not to do the second one because I realized that I was not in Portland any longer. And you, I mean, it's good to challenge an audience, but when you're being invited to be in a place and people are paying for a certain type of entertainment, I, you know, I, I wasn't, I was there to riff a stoner movie. I wasn't there for political commentary. And so I, I realized that that was the direction I really should go. Yes, I almost never go political anymore. I figured leave that to Jimmy Dore and the guys who know what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, really, if you go back to any of the stand-up I did and most of the riffing I do, it, again, it, it all comes from my own experience. And that's mostly just nerd dad stuff. You know, yeah. Is my kid is a single parent, so I was stuck at home playing video games and watching bad movies. And, you know, that's what I know. And, and you know, you, you write what you know. And it makes you very relatable, to be honest. Well, that's very kind of you. <laughs> I'm not saying this to kiss your ass. I just say that. Uh, yeah, we'll I... put you on some more shows. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, thanks. Okay, thanks. Michael Garcia, everybody. Uh, one more thing before you go. Uh, do you have any piece of advice for people trying and failing to uh, follow their dreams? Any advice for all the tryhards out there? Um, yeah, I, I guess I've got a couple of things. Um the, the, the first would be uh, try to be self-aware. Look at yourself and, and try to be honest. And if, if you're having a hard time moving forward and progressing, 
try to see what that problem happens to be. Like with me, I, I realized that my drinking was my issue. I had a lot of fun drinking and, and doing stand-up and doing improv and doing uh, podcasts, but I spent too much time doing it. And uh, I identified that as being my issue that was holding me back from producing these shows. And I, I quit drinking with the intent of drinking again down the line. I just wanted to get my life together. Uh, shows started working great. Got uh, started getting an audience. Um, felt comfortable. Went back to drinking, and it all started falling apart again because my energies were going the wrong direction. And I quit drinking subsequently, and it all kind of started lining back up again. And it was just kind of having having to be honest with myself with what that identifying what the um, roadblock was. And the other thing is just, uh, and this is probably the most important one, because not everyone's going to have issues with, with, with addictions. It could be, you know, um, problems at home or with a job that stresses you out too much. But um, take your time. And it's never, it really is never too late. You know, I only started doing these shows in the last six years in, you know, when I was in my mid forties, you know, I dreamt about it forever. And, and as long as you are working on it and working towards that goal and you don't stop, it can happen to, I mean, depending on what it is you're trying to get out of it, but if you're trying to create and, and that's your goal, you've always got time to do it if you're moving forward and just keep trying to move forward and sometimes it's slow sometimes you, you have to look out you know two years down the line as i mentioned with you i realized there was places i didn't have strength so i started doing some stand-up and i started doing some improv i uh, started going to the local um riffing type shows to see what other people do identify what worked for me what i didn't like and you know, not a, you. You don't become successful overnight in whatever you do, in whatever the whatever level of success it is you're looking for. For someone like me, it's mostly about just creating and having fun and uh, enjoying doing these shows with people who I think are kind and funny. And that is one of the things that you know Portland really has to offer. But uh, again, just just. Uh, don't give up, man. Keep going. It's always there if you can keep moving forward. All right. You nailed it. You nailed it. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Michael Garcia. Do you want to plug your pluggables one more time? Yeah, sure. Um, I host several Portland uh, live comedy shows. They're all on hiatus at the moment because of COVID. Uh, those are VHS Vengeance and uh, Forgotten Fantasies. You can check those out on my website, fftheshow.com. We both shows, uh, FF the Show is on uh, Facebook and Instagram, VHS Vengeance under that name on uh, Facebook and Instagram. And if you uh, go to the Clinton Street Theater website, you can see some of our live recorded shows over the next couple of weeks as they're posting. All right. Brilliant. Thank you very much for joining me today. Well, hey, thank you so much for uh, inviting me into my backyard. All right. Thanks, everyone. That was a great episode.